Well, uh, good morning to you, wherever you are this morning. Uh, We are going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We'll look at the first 14 verses. Uh, Before we do so, I want to pray for you and for me. Lord, I ask that you would use this word now to minister to your people, that they might be built up and edified through it. May my words be pleasing to you. Lord, I ask that I would speak as if speaking the oracles of God, so that in all things you may be glorified and honored through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom belongs dominion and power forever. And help the people to receive this, heart, this, this word with joyful hearts and, and, and build them up through it, that they may serve you more wholeheartedly in days to come. In Christ I pray, amen. So we are, we're going to be in Hebrews 9. Before we get there, though, I want to uh, tell you a little bit of a a story. Uh, I was 13 years old, uh, and it was one of my uh, first jobs that I had. There was some rental property that that hosted several businesses, and and my job was to to keep the the property clean. Uh, So I agreed to pick up trash uh, around the property once a week. About three months later, though, I I decided that was uh, boring, um, and so once a week turned into once every other week, and then that turned into once a month. Uh, of course, the extra trash building up on the property signaled to the owner that, that I was not fulfilling my duties, and he remained very patient with me, but firmly expected uh, excellence. As weeks went by, though, I, I felt a growing sense uh, of guilt. Uh, I hadn't stuck to my word I dishonored the man who hired me. Eventually, the burden of guilt was uh, so devastated me, I went to the owner and I confessed how I had been slacking uh, in, in my work, and he agreed. And, and then he also explained further ways I had, had wronged him and, and others by my actions, some ways that I hadn't even thought about. Uh, but then, uh, after that, he, he forgave me. He, he gave me a hug, and he, and he looked me in, in the eyes and, and uh, said that I could start over the, the following week. I went to him absolutely crushed, but I, I left with this, this, this great freedom uh, in his uh, forgiveness. What was that, that burden that I, that I carried Though what, what was that that inner judge, you know, rightly condemning me? You know, why did I feel so crushed and 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 guilty by my actions, by my wrongdoings? Well, it, it's called a conscience. Uh, as God's image bearers, we are moral creatures. We we make moral judgments about what's right and and what's wrong. And the con- your conscience is, is that part of you that, that turns the moral spotlight and shines it back on, on yourself. And it's not merely the sense of you know there's a right and wrong out there, uh, but it also includes a sense that you're going to have to give it an answer for, for all that you do and, and think and, and feel. Why the conscience exists at all, I mean, has befuddled uh, many, many people 
but the Bible does give some, some very strong pointers. For instance, Romans 1 and 2 uh, is, a, is a good example. Romans 1 teaches that all humans know that God exists, that he's powerful, and that we're accountable to him. Uh, human conscience is imperfect, and sometimes it's, it's even seared. But Romans 2 still indicates that the works of the law are, are written on our hearts. That our, that our conscience will, will bear witness and accuse us on, on judgment day. So it's, it's one thing for me to, to, to stand before another man, uh, the man that I admired uh, growing up and give an account for my wrongs, but it's a whole other thing to stand before the Holy One, the, the, the maker uh, of heaven and earth. Right? As Scripture says, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living of the living God. Many of you, you know, sit there with with uh, guilty consciences. You're you're burdened with with the guilt from from your sin or wrongdoings from the past. Uh, you know that you've done wrong. It, being a Christian uh, sometimes makes even makes it worse, doesn't doesn't it? Because because you know more about how holy God. Uh, truly is, and, and, and we know more accurately about how much he, he hates sin. And, and sometimes that is enough to, to drive us to, to despair. Beloved, Hebrews 9 is good news uh, for you. It is good news for a guilty conscience. Not only does the Bible tell us why our conscience burdens us so greatly and why it ought to burden us before God's holy character. It also tells us how the Lord cleanses the conscience and frees us to serve in God's presence without fear. And that's the subject of today's message. Hebrews 9 is good news for the guilty. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 to 14. And verses 1 to 14 have, have two, uh, two main parts. And the first part comes in verses uh, 1 to 10. Okay? It explains what the old covenant foreshadowed but couldn't fulfill. What the old covenant foreshadowed but, but couldn't fulfill. Uh, chapter 8 told us that Jesus mediates a, a better covenant. Something uh, not yet explained, though, is, is the sacrifice that makes the new covenant so much Better. He hasn't really gone into a whole lot of detail about that sacrifice, and that's why chapters 9 to 10 exist. But before getting to that sacrifice, he tells us how the Old Covenant anticipated that sacrifice. Okay, So chapter 9, verse 1 says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, okay? What is that earthly place of holiness? Well, verses 2 to 5 describe it for us, and what we find described is the tabernacle of Israel's, of Israel's wilderness wanderings, okay? Exodus 25 to 40 is, is the place to go if you want some homework uh, to, to, to look there for this tabernacle. But for now, he simply sketches out a, a few details about it to make a specific point. Uh, verse 2 says, For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table 
and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. And then behind the the second curtain uh, was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables of the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the, the cherubim of glory, and they were overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we, we cannot now speak in detail. Now I want you to note that of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I, I, I'm, I'm not going to belabor the point either, uh, on, but only to say this. You know, sometimes uh, when you, you know, you're in your Bible reading in the morning or, or uh, uh, trying to walk through your, your, uh, the Bible with your kids or something, and, and, and you wonder, you know, why God gives so much space to describing the tabernacle, <laughs> the ark of acacia wood, right? The, the four rings of gold for this and two poles for that and plates and dishes and, and bowls and lampstand and altars and tables and curtains and who's putting what together and what gifts are being used to stitch up this curtain and, and, and set it up and who's moving it where. And so many details. Why spend so much time? How does this help my marriage? And how does this help... Uh, my parenting, and how does it help with my work, right? You're tempted to just kind of breeze right over it, skip, skip right over it, kind of glance over the, your eyes gloss over. Well, that sort of impatient reading actually causes us to miss something very crucial. You know, central to the people of God is the dwelling of God. Central to the people of God is the dwelling of God. What good is the rest of life if God doesn't dwell with you? Right? The most important thing in life is fellowship with God. That's what the tabernacle was all about in Israel. No wonder he spent so much time. It is the most important thing, fellowship with God. It not only, the tabernacle, uh, as a picture, it not only exposed a big problem that, that sin separates us from God, it also pictured what needed to happen for man to dwell with God once again. You see, the gold, you know, the, the precious stones, the, the cherubs, so these angelic figures, the ornate lampstand with, with flower blossoms, the glory of God's presence in, in the midst. Every one of these little details is pointing us backward to Eden and what we lost there. We lost the presence of God because of sin. It's pointing backwards, but then it's also taking us forward. And, and it pictures what must happen to bring us into God's presence again. That's why he next describes the regulations for worship. Verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, he says, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So that would be from Leviticus 16, if you want some more homework. Um, once a year, Israel 
uh, once a year in Israel, the high priest would enter the most holy place. And, and he represented the people before God. And he did so to atone for the people's sins, his own sins included. Okay? Atonement has to do with God solving the sin problem, doesn't it? God is holy. His law is, is perfect. The problem is that people break it. They sin. And because God is holy, he can't just sweep it under the rug and pretend it's not, not there. He must punish it, right? And, and the, the penalty of that sin is, is death. Sin deserves death. At the same time, God uh, shows, uh, he chooses to love sinners and bring them into his presence. But the only way they can enter into his presence is by the death of another in their place, okay? The, the high priest would offer the blood of bulls and goats to atone for the people's sin. You see, they deserve to die. But atonement had to do with inflicting the death penalty for sin upon another in your place, okay? It wasn't just about blood being spilt, right? The, but blood that actually signified the death of another in your place. The people were taught to say that, that the, 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 the death, that, that death right there is a substitute for the death I deserve. Okay, that's, that's what the whole system was, was pointing to. Every year on the Day of Atonement, the sacrifices of the high priest taught the people about their need for atonement. But it also indicated something else. You see, the very existence of these regulations meant something was lacking. The very fact that priestly sacrifices were necessary over and over and over and over and over again, the very fact that the people still couldn't enter God's presence, but only the high priest, and even he could only go once a year. The very fact that all of that remained was a sign. It showed a serious deficiency. And he tells us what that deficiency is in verse 8. He says, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age, or until, or pointing to the present age. According to this arrangement, that, that old arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the, sac the conscience of the worshiper, but only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So what's he saying? Or better, what was the Holy Spirit indicating back there under the old covenant? The old priestly order, the old regulations for worship, it all existed as a symbol pointing forward to a better age, pointing forward to the time of reformation. And until that time came, the old order, the old order was seriously lacking in two big ways. Access to God's present wasn't open for the people, and the sacrifices couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. That's how it was lacking. No access, no perfection, no guilty conscience cleared, no good. Right? 
Nevertheless, it all pointed forward to a better day. And so while the old covenant foreshadowed better things, it could never actually bring those better things. Christ brings the better things. Right? He brings them, which is the second main part I want us to see, what Christ fulfills and secures for us. What Christ fulfills and secures for us. Follow his... Uh, Follow him in verses 11 to 14 now. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What did Jesus do to bring the time of Reformation? Well, to begin, Jesus appeared to bring the good things. He appeared to bring the good things. Verse 11, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. So he's, he's speaking on this side of the cross. The day has dawned with Jesus' coming. The time of reformation is here. What are the good things in view? He said, well, you know, uh, very soon he's going to tell us what they are. And two of them are a purified conscience and access to God. But there's more to it than that, right? It, it also includes every blessing uh, that the new covenant uh, in chapter 8 discussed, right? A, a new heart, a renewed covenant bond, forgiveness of sins. And even to this, you could, you could also add freedom from the devil's tyranny in chapter 2, verse 14, and the removal of God's wrath in chapter 2, verse 17, and the promised rest uh, of God, in God's presence of chapter 4, verse 10. And, and it, I mean, uh, you could add to that the, the unshakable kingdom that we'll get to in chapter 12, verse, verse 28. Uh, to use Paul's language, this is the good things are every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that come to us in Christ. Christ appeared to bring us these good things. Okay, how did, how did he get us these good things? Uh, he goes on that Jesus offered himself by the Spirit. Jesus offered himself by the Spirit. Look at verse 14. Who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Now there's all kinds of debate over what eternal Spirit means. You know, should it be lowercase Spirit and referring to Jesus' human spirit? Is this his divine nature? Is it stressing the divinity of the Holy Spirit himself? On and on the, the questions go. Uh, the way I take it is that the Holy Spirit empowered Jesus to accomplish his mission. Okay? Luke's gospel emphasizes this quite well, you know, from the virgin conception to Jesus' anointing to Jesus' temptations to his mission in Galilee, casting out demons, rejoicing at Satan's downfall, you, you name it, the Holy Spirit strengthens Jesus as a man at every point such that when he comes to the cross and he walks through the agony of the cross in the Spirit's strength at every turn, he is a man without blemish. He is the perfect sacrifice. That He's the eternal Spirit uh, seems to look back to chapter 9, verse 8. 
Okay, and that's where we saw the Holy Spirit at work through the Old Covenant. He was indicating something back there. That Spirit who was indicating way back there is the same Spirit, the eternal Spirit, who enabled Jesus to offer Himself this way on the cross. Okay, In other words, the Holy Spirit, who is eternal, not, uh, not only foreshadowed uh, the time of Reformation, the Holy Spirit also empowered the Messiah to bring that time of Reformation to fruition. Jesus also secured eternal redemption for us. Uh, Look at verse 12. He entered not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, you could read that to mean Jesus secured redemption as a result of the entering, but that's not quite the point here. The main verb is that Christ entered, Uh, in verses 11 to 12, and so it it reads better like this, that having appeared and having secured, Christ entered. Okay, He appeared, He secured by offering Himself, and then He entered when that was all finished. Okay, But what what does it mean that He secured an eternal redemption? Well, redemption has to do with a payment being made to loose somebody from captivity. A payment being made to loose somebody from captivity. So think Exodus with with me, right? The people were in slavery. They had no ability to, to get themselves out. Someone greater than the people, someone greater than Pharaoh and in Egypt, namely God, God had to liberate them. But he did it at the cost of the firstborn. Okay? Except he didn't take Israel's firstborn. In their place, God provided the blood of a lamb. Okay? So their freedom came at the cost of the lamb. Okay, fast forward to Jesus. Far more serious, far greater thing here. We are slaves to sin. Okay, And we lack the ability to liberate ourselves. Something greater than us, something greater than sin, namely God, has to act to liberate us. And He did this at the cost of His Son. Okay? Jesus is the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our freedom from sin came at the cost of Jesus' life. With that payment... God set us free. He redeemed us. Okay? And, and, and that's what every sacrifice following the Exodus was, was, was pointing to. Even more, Jesus' blood was of such infinite value that it bought us an eternal redemption. So all of those united to Jesus are redeemed from their slavery to sin, not just a little bit, not just for a little bit of time, and then we need to start offering sacrifices again. No, He did it forever. Okay? It is an eternal redemption. And here's more good news. It says Jesus also entered the true holy place. He entered the true holy place. Verse 12, He entered once for all into the holy places. Now, don't think earthly holy places. 
Uh, look at verse 11. It says, He entered through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Remember, the earthly tent was but a copy. It was, it was a little scale model of God's heavenly dwelling. And occasionally in Scripture, you know, God kind of pulls back the curtain, so to speak, and, and He gives prophets a vision of His heavenly dwelling place, and it is glorious. That is the dwelling place that Jesus entered. Not only did we need freedom from sin, we needed access to God there. Okay? Under the old covenant, the way was closed. The priest could never open it. Jesus opened it. Okay? He flung the doors wide open for us. Right? He offered himself as an unblemished sacrifice on earth, which then won his place in heaven. He entered into the very presence of God, not just to represent us there, but also to one day bring us with him into that glory. Okay? So he appeared, he offered, he secured, and Jesus entered. All right? Now, what is the result? What is the result in verses 13 and 14? For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, so that is those, those imperfect things worked back there to make people ceremonially clean, not fully clean, but clean enough to participate in the shadows. He says if those things did that, then how much more, now that the substance have come, right? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So he's making a comparison with the older sacrifices and Jesus' sacrifices, but then he also stresses how much greater Jesus's was, right? Those sacrifices back there never allowed free access to God's presence, nor did any of them ever cleanse the conscience. Jesus' sacrifice does both. It's effective. It achieves both for us. It purifies our conscience from dead works, right? The works are dead in that outside of Christ, we're dead in sin, we're dead to God's law, so, so we then give ourselves to various idols that will only produce more death and eventually lead to eternal death. Okay? It doesn't matter how religious they, they may even seem. Without a relationship with the living God, their dead works. And dead works leave us undone before our Maker. Right? We're guilty of all of our dead works. The good news, though, is that Jesus purifies our conscience from those dead works. And when he does, he makes us into, into a, a new kind of person. We enjoy serving the living God. Dead works are not our thing anymore. Jesus makes us alive in the Spirit and alive to God's Word and alive in God's presence. We no longer carry the burden of our guilt because sin is dealt with once and for all. We no longer have to, to fear the Lord's wrath. We have freedom to live and serve in His presence. Can, can you just see him pleading with the people as they're being tempted to revert to the, to the old covenant? Why would you return to your old ways in Judaism? 
Right? Why would you put yourself back under the, the law, back under the old covenant? The old covenant never could, could never clear you before God. Jesus does. Lay hold of Jesus. He opened the way for you. The author doesn't want them to let go of Jesus. And you shouldn't let go of Jesus. Right? To do so would be to forfeit all the good things that he makes true under the new covenant. So are you thankful? Are you, are you thankful for Jesus' work? Do you wake up thankful that, that Jesus purified your, your conscience from dead works? I mean, you don't have to carry that, that guilty burden, right? You're like Christian in, 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 in Pilgrim's progress. Remember, the, the, the burden of the law was just weighing him down and, and crushing him. The, the weight of God's holiness uh, and, his, and his guilt for sin is just crushing him. But as the story goes, Christian, he eventually comes to the, the cross uh, of Jesus and, and, he, and there it's where he finds that, that burden loosed and, and it rolls off and it rolls down the, the, in, into, the, into the grave such that he can see it no more, right? And what does he do? He responds with song, like, blessed cross, he says, blessed sepulcher, right? Blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Sing, sing, Christian, uh, of this purification. Don't hold back in, in, your joy, in your joy over what Christ has done for you. Jesus purifies our conscience from dead works that, he, that we may serve in God's presence freely. Come to Jesus with, with your guilty burdens. He died to set you free. More than ever, even as believers, we need to keep coming to Him, don't we? As our knowledge of God's holiness grows, the more we understand how shameful our sins truly are, the more we are aware of how much we need His cleansing. Uh, in their book on the conscience, Andy Nacelli and, and J.D. Crowley uh, put it this way. This is really good. He says, there is, there is generally a proportional relationship between how mature you are as a Christian and how aware you are of your sinfulness. The more you grow by means of grace, the more sensitive you become to your sinfulness... Sorry, I put the emphasis on the wrong part. The more you grow by means of grace, the more sensitive you become by your sinfulness. Uh, I mean, the more sensitive you become to your sinfulness. That explains why a Christian often feels so wretched. But then what, he says? If the gap between what we should be and what we really are keeps growing... How can we possibly escape despair in the Christian life? What do we do with this supercharged knowledge of God and this supercharged conscience with its supercharged condemnations? Here's the answer. He says, only an ever-increasing trust in Christ's work on the cross can fill this ever-widening gap and keep us from despair. That's good. Jesus alone has made the sacrifice to purify our conscience from dead works. So give thanks, believer. And then tell others about it. Tell others. 
Do you believe this truth for others as well? It's true that some people damage their conscience significantly. Some ignore their conscience to the point that it becomes callous and, 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 and hardened and, and seared by the lies that they keep telling themselves. It's one thing for people to feel guilty when they shouldn't, but it's another thing when they ought to feel guilty and don't. In their case, we must pray for God to change their disposition, to, to give them a new heart that's receptive to truth. We must then take steps to teach them God's holiness and pray that, that, that they will sense the true weight of His glory. But when they're undone, don't hold back from preaching Christ to them. Don't hold back. Hold out the person of Jesus to them in His fullness. How many people have you talked to are burdened by their guilt? A month ago, I had a, a neighbor telling me the dark places that he went to after his mother died at age 16. And he carried a lot of shame from his past, and he regrets a lot of the choices that he, he made. Some of you have talked with, with women who've, who've had abortions or done other things, that, and, and, and their, their, their conscience just torments them daily. I've talked to men who've devastated their marriage and family because of their sexual immorality. You've likely encountered others who've, who've wronged you in, in some way, and, and in order to ease their conscience, they, they try to make up for it with all kinds of, of deeds and, and gifts and, and sacrifices. It's like they enslave themselves to others as a way to kind of self-atone. You may know someone who committed a crime and, and the consequences haunt them over the years. You may have a son or, or daughter, you know, who feels guilty for something they did or, or said at school. Just this week, I, I walked by my, my uh, youngest daughter's room and, and, and she, was, she had her head buried in her knees and she was saying, it's all my fault, it's all my fault. And uh, after, getting to, after talking with her a little bit, I realized she didn't do anything wrong uh, in, a, in, in this uh, particular situation. Uh, her sister had done the wrong. And so I was, I was just sitting there talking to her that, that, you know, you don't need to feel guilty for something you didn't actually do. But I said, but you ought to feel guilty for things that you actually did. That, that's when you need to, to feel guilty for the wrongs you actually committed. And, and, and as we went on, you know, she just, she looked at me and her, her eyes started filling up with tears and she said, I cut my hair again. And she was, she's, a couple of days before she had cut her hair but not let her know. She just, the, the guilt was overwhelming her that she finally just got it out. Here was what I did. Well, in those moments, parents, and in those moments with your neighbors, are you, are you going to bring them Jesus who cleanses the guilty conscience, right? Will you give them this word of hope? You know, the world can't offer this to them. No, the, the world would just pat you on the head and say, it's no big deal, when in reality it's a huge deal in your heart. You know within it is, and you're going to have to give an account one day. Or, or, the world, all the world will do is pile on the guilt, right? And make sure you pay as long as it advances their agenda. 
right? The world will pile on the guilt to manipulate you into all kinds of slavery and never will it be enough to please them or satisfy their gods. That's what the world has. But we have better news to bring, right? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood they lose all their guilty stains. The forgiveness you really and truly need, our God provides in Jesus. Do you believe this truth for the lost? Do you believe God will do this for those you might even consider your enemies? For all who come to Him in Jesus. God is faithful and just to forgive sins and cleanse from all unrighteousness. So spread the news. Spread the news. Teach your kids. Tell your neighbors. Also, serve the Lord wholeheartedly in everything. Serve the Lord wholeheartedly in everything. Note again the purpose for the purification in verse 14. We are purified from dead works to serve the living God. As Ben put it a while back, it's not that we're just saved from something. We are saved to someone. We are saved to God. So serve the living God. The language is beautiful here. Sometimes it's translated serve in the Bible. Other times it's translated as as worship. In Exodus, you might recall uh, Moses going to Pharaoh a, a, a number of times And God tells Pharaoh through Moses, he says, let my people go that they may serve me. Right? It's the same word. Redemption from slavery by an act of God's grace had as its goal worship, devoted service to the Lord. Or when Satan tempted Jesus with all of the nations and if he would only bow, bow to Satan and worship. And Jesus fights back with this. He says, be gone, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Same word. Or in Revelation 7.15, we see this great host of saints and they're coming out of the great tribulation and they've, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And it says, they are therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve Him, same word, they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. So they're in the, that heavenly temple. In other words, this service is the result of grace. It images Jesus' own devotion to His Father's will. And it represents a new priesthood who get to serve in God's presence. Right? Why does, so why, why does Paul say things like this in 1 Timothy 4.4? This, so this comes in the context of marriage and food. He says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. It is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So when you sit down at the dinner table, 
when you sit down uh, for your lunch at work and, and you give thanks for that peanut butter and jelly sandwich, according to Paul, something as mundane as eating that peanut butter and jelly sandwich becomes holy. It becomes an act of worship. Why? Why is this? Because God purified you and made you into a new priesthood to serve in the living God's presence in whatever you do. That will radically transform how you wake up in the morning and get ready for the day. That will radically impact the way you view a lot of the monotonous, mundane things in your marriage and in your family and in your workplace, won't it? Because now that you're in Christ, you serve in the presence of the living God. Remember, what good is life if there's no fellowship with God? Central to the people of God is the dwelling of God. And this text is teaching us that in those moments throughout the day, we can be with God through the blood of Jesus. Everything you do from eating to scrubbing floors to schooling your children to returning an email to hiking a trail during a pandemic to stewarding your body to, to painting or, or dealing with dissatisfied customers. When, when, when you're in Christ, you get to serve the living God in that moment. So do it wholeheartedly. Remember what He redeemed you from. Remember how He purifies your conscience from dead works and, and commit yourself wholly to Him. And when you do, you know what your life will become, church? Your life will become a, a little outcropping of heaven on earth. That's what, that's what the church is, a little outcropping of heaven and earth. And that's what your life is supposed to be. Supposed to point people to, right? It's going to be a little outcropping of the age to come when we see God face to face. Revelation 22 verse 3 says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him or, or serve them. Same word. They will see His face, and God's name will be on their foreheads. Meaning, that's the final priesthood. Right? That's what your life will image. Now, when you serve in God's presence day to day, in Christ, you have free access to God and you can come to Him without fear. His sacrifice truly removed your sin and your guilt. And for that, we can give thanks. I want to do that now. Father, thank You for the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank You that His blood was sufficient to help us have our conscience cleansed from dead works. And also, thank you that his sacrifice is sufficient and full and final to bring us into your presence forever. We look forward to that day when we will see you face to face 
and get to serve in that way. Until then, Lord, make us faithful stewards of all that you've given to us. And help us serve the living God in everything we do. Amen.